Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. Over the coming weeks, we'll be giving you background and insight into some of the stories that have been making headlines on our website and in our paper, as well as serving you up fresh content as well, all for free. Although we do hope you'll subscribe to our monthly print edition. That's how journalists like me get paid. So come on, you know it's the right thing to do. Go to subscribe.bylinetimes.com. In this episode, we'll be hearing about Wigan Athletic Football Club and an ownership scandal that shames English football. But first, Byline Times co-founder and executive editor Peter Jukes, who's been telling me what the Byline Times stands for after he got irresistibly drawn into the world of hard news. Well, I moved from drama. I was a dramatist for a quarter of a century doing... um very heavily research-based dramas, you know, about undercover cops, about Bosnia and things like that. And some reason later on in my life, in the twilight of my years, uh, I got involved in journalism. I knew a lot of journalists and I ended up live tweeting the phone hacking trial, writing a book about Murdoch and kind of got into crowdfunded journalism. I, I wasn't a journalist. Nobody would pay me. But suddenly I trained as one and people would pay me to um, you know, provide, in a way, impartial information especially over sort of controversial issues like Rupert Murdoch, because I wasn't the BBC, I wasn't the Guardian, but I wasn't obviously the Times or News of the World. And actually, it was much more dramatic than doing drama. It was great fun. And, and unlike TV drama and stage drama, you actually, as a journalist, you have a lot more interaction with the audience, sometimes very bad interaction. Uh, you get people sort of trolling you and legal threats. But it actually... It was much more like drama than drama itself. And out of that, I helped uh, advise a crowdfunding site set up uh, in 2015 called Byline.com, which is crowdfunding journalism, kind of slightly inspired by mine and other people's experience. And then out of that, we did a festival. And then we realized, well, you know, because we're quite sort of investigative, newspapers don't want to, you know, a bit wary of us. They won't sponsor the festival. So why don't we create a paper that will sponsor the festival? And and we did realize, I mean, after seven, eight years now, I've been a, a journalist. That citizen journalism has an important place. Journalism comes from the idea of a journal, a diary. You know, at one point in our life, we all might be citizen journalists. But journalism itself as a profession, the dedication, the caution, the sort of research needed, needed support. And so I think the idea of a newspaper was just something you know, with a masthead, a collective endeavor that had, was really hard on the facts, was well edited, but also sort of quite diverse, that we needed to get away from just the individual byline and create a collective edifice. And that's where we are. And uh, you're part of it now, Adrian, so you can't get away. And very proudly part of it as well. Live tweeting the Leveson mm. inquiry, which of course investigated phone hacking by newspapers. Mm. Was that the moment for you when you realised that there was something rotten in the world of journalism? Yeah, just to, to clarify, I could have, I didn't attend Leveson every day. I, I sort of live tweeted from my bedroom, really, most of that. But no, there was live tweeting the phone hacking trial. It's one of the longest trials and certainly one of the biggest and most expensive in British history. Um, that was, I was, I wrote a book published by another journalist called Martin Hickman. He said, that was like driving at 70 miles an hour in the fog with no brakes. <laughs> Every morning there'd be one of the defence barristers. Usually there's sometimes the prosecutor, my Lord, what is it? There's been a tweet 
and we're all in danger of contempt of court and being thrown into prison, you know, in shackles. But it was very, very scary. Well, it wasn't actually because I, in a way, I, I didn't realize how dangerous it was at the time. So I was foolhardy and young. I think, yeah, I mean, that that revealed to me the information you get. It is that, as subsequently working with Cal Cadwallader on Cambridge Analytica, that in the information economy, the the front line is news. Um, if we look at the rise of populism, you know, or you know, Putin and his influence in certain countries in Central and Eastern Europe, they don't anymore park their tanks outside the television station. They take over the television station. They buy it. Or they go online and create avatars and bots and sort of troll factories to sway what information the public is getting. Rupert Murdoch obviously is, is an amazing newspaper man and then a TV, you know, satellite broadcaster innovation there. But it's also there were certain stories he didn't want to tell. He obviously didn't want to talk about phone hacking didn't want to talk about Mazza Mahmoud's various activity, the famous fake shake who was News of the World's uh, top kind of investigative reporter for many years. He didn't want to talk about the Daniel Morgan murder and the involvement in News of the World with the murder suspects. So, yes, I realized the information I was getting was partial. I think, I think 2010 was a turning point for me. I knew the press was left, right, you know, divided, mainly right wing. But I think that moment, would you remember that moment of Clegmania, uh, where then suddenly all the newspapers, all the mainstream newspapers, decided to dob in Nick Clegg and had all these stories about him that suddenly came out after he rose in the polls. And I realized this is a cartel in operation. I knew from many people at the BBC, it could, the BBC journalists could be very good, but also very cautious, very middle of the road. Issues like Bosnia saying, well, we can't trust the Bosnians, you know, and could really annoy me. But I hadn't until that moment seen that the feral press wasn't actually feral. It wasn't actually wild. It wasn't like the classic description of good gutter journalism, maggots, maggots that eat the dead flesh and therefore cleanse wounds. It was controlled. It was working to a collective agenda, a cartel. I always think of a bit like the seven Nazgul who work for Sauron in Lord of the Rings. They were tied to the will of some agenda, uh, which was apparent in Leveson, that first Leveson inquiry covering up stuff, was apparent in the phone hacking trial, though some papers did report it, you know, fairly fairly, but then wanted to throw it away. And I think has been even more apparent in the seven, eight years since, because of Brexit, because the leading politicians in our country, namely Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, are colonists, are so-called journalists, that information, journalism, that's the way access to the truth is, and denigration of the truth is the way you can control the country. So what you're mapping out there, Peter, is a, a different approach it seems to me, to journalism than one mm. we've certainly associated with the traditional print media. It's not right-wing, it's not left-wing, so much as being, if you like, proper old-school journalists holding to account those in power, whoever and wherever they may be. Yeah, I mean, I should be clear about this, that... Um... You know, our Byline Times for its last official sort of 15 months, is it something like that, has been fairly critical of Boris Johnson and the Brexit project. Um, had there been another government in power, 
had Corbyn come to power, had the leadership changed and, you know, somebody other than May taken over, we hope we would have been just as critical. But as our traffic has shown us, the number of stories we've shown, it's a very target-rich environment, this current government. And our job, our only alignment, I say, there, it's very, it sounds idealistic, but actually it's just bloody common sense. We do have an alignment to the truth. I think, I cannot remember, and I'm getting on in my years, and you're a young strapping lad, Adrian, that, that <laughs> a government that so consistently lies, I really, really can't, and you know, we, let's not go into detail, but our next edition will be about the suppression of the truth around the coronavirus and the results and the testing and all this going on. Um, there is a focus on untruth. Now, I think the problem has, and it's been on the left and the right, a, a distrust of truth. And I sound very naive when I say, well, we're searching for the truth. But it's really important. So on the left, even you know, journalists I know and admire and friends like Nick Davis will go, well, there's no such thing as ob objectivity. You know, A journalist always brings subjectivity to the table. And uh, there's been a left-wing, a postmodernist, a postmodern, uh, post-truth attack uh, on the idea of objectivity, uh, which I think is problematic. It's, you know... I experienced it as a student with the whole sort of postmodernism, uh, the whole structuralism debate. Boring, boring. I won't bore your listeners with that. But truth does matter. And though we can never completely get to truth, you know, there's no complete final truth. You know, it's like there's no absolute degree zero. We can aspire to it. And I always think of it a bit like the pole star. Like, look, you know, I'm never going to get to Polaris, which is whatever, four light years, million, yeah, four light years away. But I can use it to guide me towards the north. We should aspire to truth because it really does matter. It really does matter if, you know, that scent you're spraying on your wrist is actually Novichok nerve agent. And I think there's been from the left originally and now from the right, a casual dismissal of the idea of truth. It's all will to power. You sit more on the right now with people like Steve Bannon. If you line up, it doesn't matter because you'll get power. We're fighting that. That's the agenda of Byline Times is to fight lies and slightly old-fashioned, as you say, kind of return to an enlightenment sense of values, like, you know, whatever you're left or right, whatever your politics, we should be able to agree, you know, what your temperature is, or, you know, how many people have died from coronavirus in the UK, that, that both all politics, the, the, the democracy relies on accurate information, you know, vote tallies, all that stuff, and a consensus around some fundamental realities. Now, it gets difficult with right and wrong, with ethics. I think we're in a struggle about the rule of law. I think the problem with Britain, unlike America, we're a norm-based society. People behave decently. Of course they won't, if they're contempt of parliament, be number 10 advisor and break lockdown. But that's what Dominic Cummings has done. There's no shame attached. There's no actual punishment. Those norms of good behavior expected from our politicians and their advisors can easily be walked through and and the rule of law begins to be undermined you know we've seen this with various inquiries into vote leave and leave EU that you know that's just breaking the rules they're not actually breaking the law and I think I hope there's a large constituency out there and our followers you know all the way from you know the left and the Green Party to Lib Dems to traditional conservatives that you know we do we can't even begin to have proper politics until we agree it's raining today and if you're not sure it's raining today go outside and see 
<laughs> uh, Byline Times has a, a different funding model as well than most traditional media outlets. Just talk me through how it pays for itself, how you pay journalists to write. Yeah, we should pay them more. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I came from... Uh, we, we, I came from the crowdfunding model, which was very good for individual projects. I funded you know, the phone hacking trial, a book, started off the Daniel Morgan podcast on that. Eventually, that was paid for by sponsorship and advertising. But yeah, funding journalism is like the problem. And what's really happened and why you know it's desperately right wing or desperately supporting Johnson and Gove is because... You know, these papers are getting, are getting grants in the form of advertising during the coronavirus crisis. Underlying it all is funding and simple things happened last 10 years. All the advertising, which paid for journalism and you know, for newspapers at least, you know, the print edition, you paid 10p or 20p or one pound, that paid for the print costs. The content was paid for by advertising. This has been the model of independent journalism from the 1850s when the Times first ran it was one of the first newspapers not to be just owned by a rich person who wanted to have their own way because that's how papers had worked before now google facebook amazon you know these digital titans have sucked billions out of publishing and so that's the part of the state we're in so what's the other funding model we tried doing digital advertising we could see that wasn't going to work uh even print advertising, it's just not going to pay its way. What we found sort of almost accidentally was that people love a print edition, so they'll pay for a print edition, even though they could get it free online. They like having their name in the front and the back as kind of sponsors or supporters of the paper. They'll pay more. And they like being part of it. They like, you know, people tell us, oh, I don't love this. I've left it on the tube. I've given it to my granny who reads the Daily Mail. People like like they like vinyl again. They like physical things, and they they are happy to subscribe. Now we will be in the W H Smith and the shops eventually when that get a big enough base. But at the moment we've got about seven thousand subscribers, and that funds us. And you know I think we broke even one month this year. It surprised us. We didn't expect to break even until next year. And uh, as we get a bigger base, they return, we can expect their money, you know, they, they, they pay every year and, you know, new people join up and we can begin to, you know, do the subscription model, you know how many you've got to print, you know you've got people to talk to, you make them members, you kind of inter engage with them, they go and get new people and that's quite a reliable model, you know, it's not reliable, you know, one day because of coronavirus, nobody's buying newspapers in the shops. We know we can send that out every month. And the print edition funds the free online edition. Now, you know, we don't have a paid model, probably never will. I can't imagine why we would. And people go, well, how, why are people paying for something they can get free? But you could, the newspaper is a completely different experience. You know, the journey of the newspaper is redesigned, it's re-edited. You go from article to article. There's a story of the month. You'll see things you'd never see online because it's, it's analog, you know, just like going to a bookshop. You, know, you will see books you never even knew you didn't know. You know what I mean? The unknown unknowns. Whereas on Amazon, it tells you, Amazon is always recommending me to buy my own book. Peter, you might be really interested in this book by Peter Dukes. Actually, I feel I said, no, I know it already. I've actually not only read it, I've written it. The, the digital experience, that is not, you know, you know electrons will never replace atoms. You can't have a digital glass of wine 
And I think there's something about the physical linear experience of reading a paper, having it in your hands, uh, stumbling across stuff you wouldn't have found. You didn't even know you weren't looking for, you know what I mean, or were looking for. Um, and I think people really enjoy that. And for the breaking news, obviously, you go to the website there. But a lot of our articles, especially there's a great guy called Adrian Goldberg, who writes brilliantly on require a kind of longer read sometimes or reflection. We say People say <laughs> it's very dense, the newspaper. It's only 32 pages, but very few ads. Uh, that they're reading it all month. It's a newspaper, but it has that magazine feel, but it's still news. So it's, it's a hybrid, but, you know, we have to reinvent the wheel. You know, that 18th, 19th century model of newspapers is broken. And it's very encouraging, I imagine, the the scale of take-up because people are proving that they do want this. As you say, it's something they could get for free online, but they're choosing. And I think that's because there's a, a thirst out there, an appetite out there for other outlets of news. Yeah, no, and, and you know, I first entered journalism via cup writing three books, I think, in the end on Rupert Murdoch and the problems of monopoly. You see, I think it's all about monopoly power, and he had monopoly power in the British press and was about to get it with taking over the whole of Sky. And that's neither a left thing or a right thing. People could understand competition from left and right. You know, you don't want monopolies. Um, and I think I first discovered the dysfunction at all, you know, seven years ago, uh, well, nearly nine when it first came to phone hack. Yeah, nine years ago. And, and I was a bit of, you know, we all seemed a bit crazy. I remember Carol. I got to know Carol Cadwalder four years ago, the great observer journalist who, you know, exposed the Cambridge Analytica scandal. She said, I thought you were one of those sort of press bashers, you know, you know, and people didn't get it. But her experience in the last three years since Cambridge Analytica stories, I totally get it now. It's all corrupt. Well, I'm paraphrasing. I'm sure she doesn't think it's all corrupt, but she can see that it is a a combat zone. And, And I think more and more people can. I think, uh, unfortunately, some of that disaffection is rubbing off on the BBC, and I really do support public service broadcasting. I think it's key. I think they've made several missteps going because of their, how you know, prone they were over the Brexit issue. I think they failed to investigate certain things, but there's been some great stuff they've done. But everywhere, everybody is shooting the messenger. And... That's very negative for news in many ways. But on the other hand, you know, I've dealt with it from the very beginning when, you know, my lord, there's been a tweet to tabloid journalists investigating me, trying to expose me for things I hadn't done, uh, <laughs> which is very funny, is that journalists are, are learning they have to engage with the audience. You're no longer in that ivory tower. Journalists are having to get down and dirty a bit, and, and they can no longer assume they have that authority merely because, you know, they wear a suit and sit in a big office. And I think that's good. I think it is incumbent of our, on us as journalists or would-be journalists or trainee journalists or citizen journalists to engage with the audience, and but never forget all the lessons journalism has learned over the last 200 years about truth, about accuracy. And I think we are all, we won't all become citizen journalists. I like this route. I've trained myself up. I'm working with great journalists like yourself or our editor, Hardy Matharu, you know, I learn a lot and I understand journalism much better uh, eight years on. But we all will have to be citizen editors. We will all have to go, do I trust this source? Is this article hyperbolic? Are they, you know, do they, as many mainstream papers, are they relying, including left-wing ones, 
on one un, un, unattributed source. That's wrong. You can't do that. America, you need three off the record to even print anything. We all become diligent fact checkers. And that then I think people respect Byline Times from all shades of opinions because we have very opinionated pieces. We mark them as argument. We try to separate. It's not always easy, by the way. It's always marginal fact and argument and reportage. But we're building towards them with, you know, criticism from the audience, interaction with them. What is a, a sort of a standard of truth we can gather around? And that is a collective thing. That's not an individual commentator or byline. And I, yeah, you're right. I think uh, people are very, very hungry for that. That's Peter Jukes. My name's Adrian Goldberg, and you're listening to the Byline Times podcast. If you want to support the work of the Byline Times, please subscribe. Go to subscribe.bylinetimes.com. Now, as Peter referenced in that interview, I've become a writer for Byline Times, and I've been exploring the curious story of Wigan Athletic Football Club, who have been placed in administration, putting their entire future in doubt. Wigan are in the Championship, the level below the Premier League, and until 2018, their finances were underwritten by lifelong fan Dave Whelan, who once owned the chain of JJB Sports Shops. The club was then sold to a businessman based in Hong Kong called Stanley Choi, who has since passed control of Wigan to another company registered in the Cayman Islands. The story I wrote for Byline Times calls into question the regulation of football club ownership in England. But this story isn't just about high finance, it's also about ordinary supporters with a passion for their team. We're going to hear from John Nicholson, author of Can We Have Our Football Back, Paul Middleton, who writes for the Wigan fanzine Mud Hutter, and first Karen Kendrick, a lifelong Latic supporter, who gave me her reaction to the club going into administration. Well, it's just absolutely devastating. I, I, mean, I was just so shocked. I couldn't believe it because we've, we're a family club and we've always been a well-run club and we've always lived with our within our means no, we've we've never spent money that we haven't got in backup because we know we're a small club and we never have tried to be anything other than that we've done really well under the Whelan family you know he supported us and he backed us up and he provided money and and we went through the leagues and we did ever so well but we never got above ourselves we always realized that we were still a small club and our rise would at some point end up being a fall. And we didn't mind that. We don't mind being in the lower divisions, but we do mind people like Stanley Choi and his associates doing what they've done to us. It's not right. We're a family club, and that club in that community means everything to so many people. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think we did spend above what we could earn, but we knew that Dave Whelan was there and Dave Whelan was happy to fund those losses. Uh, with him gone, of course, it becomes a lot more difficult. But in terms of our status within football, I, I can assure you no Wigan Athletic fan has any illusions about where we are in the in the position of, of 
whether being big or small or anything else, we know we're a small club. The difference is the club have always been incredibly engaged with the fans, far more, I think, than any other club in, in the professional leagues. And I think that's now why you're seeing the reaction that you see, that Latics fans have come together. We're all trying to get answers. We're all sticking together in terms of trying to help the staff at the club who are not being paid. Uh, and I think it's a fairly unique situation. So it is, it's a crying shame that we've come to this. The days of any football club, whether it's Wigan Athletic, Manchester United or anybody else, the days of, of clubs being owned by your local scrap merchant or car dealer are, are a long way behind us. And, and a town like Wigan and most towns and even cities around the country, they're not awash with billionaires who can fund a football club. I know it's a bit of a cliche now, but it's absolutely true that if you want to make a small fortune, start with a big one and buy a football club. Karen, just tell me a little bit about the journey, because there is something of the story of Wigan that goes to the heart of the romance of football, notwithstanding Dave Dave Whelan's millions of pounds of investment. But uh, what was the journey like, Karen? Well, it's unbelievable, really. And, and I don't think there's another football, another set of football fans in the country that have been on the journey that we've been on, especially older fans, and I'm an older fan, because I remember us in the Northern Premier League and I remember going to Springfield Park with my dad when I was very young and then being elected into the football league was just huge. It was just huge in the town at the time. And we never aspired to be anything other than a lower league club. And I remember Larry Lloyd coming to the club and being manager and it was like somebody famous at the club. I mean, wow. (laughs) Younger listeners need to know that Larry Lloyd was a great centre-half who played for Liverpool and Nottingham Forest, I think. Played for both of them. Yeah, and and then we were in the lower leagues for such a long time and then we nearly went under and a lot of us were out with buckets collecting money when we nearly went under in the 80s. And then then we had Dave Whelan and and I remember the first interview with him and he said, I'm going to take this club to the Premier League. And we all laughed. We just, we just thought, you're out of your mind, Dave, you know. But he did take us on that journey and he took us to an FA Cup win and, and he took us into Europe and, and, and we were just all amazed at that. We just couldn't believe what we were experiencing. And the lows that we had going back down the leagues, I take those. I take those. I took the relegation from the Premier League you know, people said, oh, you, you'd much prefer to have stayed in the Premier League. No, never. That FA Cup win, it was the best day of my life. I said that to my three children. I'm, I'm sorry, I love you and all that. And, and it was a great day when you were born. But winning that FA Cup, being at Wembley that day with, with fans who supported the club for 50, 60 years, it was the best day of my life, without a doubt. <laughs> I love that, Karen. So going to Wembley and seeing your team winning the FA Cup final was better than the day you had each of your three kids. <laughs> Less painful. <laughs> I mean, I, I was so emotional. I, I spent most of that day crying. When when Abide With Me came on and then when Emerson Bryce brought Joseph out, who's our best mascot ever and, and he's our favourite little tick. Um, from Joseph's goal. He's a little boy with a life-limiting illness and, and the club are very associated with the charity supporting him. When all that happened, I was just in floods of tears. I didn't think I'd be able to watch any of the match because I thought I'd cry all the way through it. And, and you know, it was just 
amazing. Football fans of clubs like ours, they live for days like that. And, and Dave Whelan gave us that day, you know? just It's just been an absolutely remarkable journey. We have lived a dream, and I cannot see the club going under now after, after the journey we've been on. I don't mind going down the divisions. I'll watch them, whatever division they're in. But I, I cannot see this club go under. I can't. It'd be too much to take. I think Karen speaks so movingly about her club, and I find it. I find I find myself tearing up about about it a bit, really, because you can hear how important it is to you. And you know, this is that passion and that life affirming connection with the sporting club. That's what all of these people who come in to buy clubs don't understand. It's not that to them. It's just a thing, an abstract thing on a spreadsheet to them. And that's why I feel as though it shouldn't be allowed. You know, you should, there should, it's not just a fit and proper person's test. It should be, you should, if you're buying a football club, you should bloody well care about it as much as Karen does. It doesn't, I don't see why that's so impossible. It's only impossible because football clubs are run financially unsustainably. And that's just basically down to the wages again. It always comes back. When I was writing the book, it always comes back to wages. That basically the business is going bust because everyone's getting paid too much. And that's when and that allows these weird financial deals to be done with people who don't care about the club. And um and I, I do, I genuinely find it morally repugnant that these things happen or are allowed to happen. John Nicholson, author of Can We Have Our Football Back? And before that, you heard from Wigan supporters Karen Kendrick and Paul Middleton. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and I'd like to thank you for listening to the first episode of the Byline Times podcast. If you've got any comments or questions, thoughts or queries, do get in touch. My email is goldbergradio at gmail.com, and I'm on Twitter at Goldberg Radio. And don't forget to subscribe to Byline Times. Go to subscribe.bylinetimes.com. See you next time.